Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore and welcome to our 200th episode. I can't believe that we're still doing this uh, week after week. Our first show was on August 22nd, 2017, an episode called When is a Tax Called a Fee? I just started listening to it a little while ago because I was curious what it was about. And I think that episode I actually recorded on my own, maybe with Scott, um, but using Scott Mitchell's equipment in some office downtown. And it was about uh, a lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of a cigarette tax that they called a cigarette fee. Um, and it was ruled unconstitutional. And so I, on my first episode, we had to do an edit, um, a disclaimer up front that said, well, between the time we recorded and when we published this, this ruling came out. Here we go. I should have known then that we were off to a funny start. Well, here we are 200 episodes later. Along the way, we added a third host to this. Bailey Perkins, of course, is with us today. Hello, Bailey. Hello, Andy. I'm so happy to be here on the 200th episode. This is awesome. It's awesome. Scott is out of town. He is on an airplane right now going to visit some family, so he gets to miss out on that. Uh, Big loss for him. We'll be back uh, next week, of course, with I think all three of us. And sometime this spring, we will do something more fun. Maybe find a patio and do a live event like we did for our 100th episode. Um, We couldn't get it together in time for today, which is good because the weather is a little chilly and windy. That's exactly what I was about to say. We had good excuse because yesterday it stormed and we had a little bit of hail and um, the weather looks like it could do its thing again so that's right it's so hard to find to like plan an outdoor event in oklahoma because something's going to happen it's it is rarely beautiful weather it's always hot or humid or stormy or at least windy regardless i call it will of fortune weather that's exactly right yeah man i hit that bankrupt one every time though so (laughs) uh well we'll we'll try to plan you know a week or two out and and listeners let you know when we'll do that um maybe we'll come up with some kind of fun game or trivia or something All right. Well, um, we have a couple of guests this week, but before we get to them, Bailey and I wanted to run through real quick some of the headlines. And I think most of these deal with this, uh, the thing we've been talking about for a few weeks, jockeying for position, who's getting in the races. And I'm sharing all of this because it feels like it's coming at us really fast and furious. And I know because it is, it's, it's, this is a rarity, um, for the listeners who may be wondering, like, why, like, what is so exciting about this midterm election? Um, it's one of the rare occasions where you have both seats for U.S. Senate open due to um, Senator Inhofe announcing his retirement before March 1. And so you have a lot of uh, seats that are opening due to people deciding to fill in what I call the domino effect, because when you have two large openings like your U.S. senator uh, position, you then have folks who are in Congress who want to run for that seat. And then there are state legislators who want to then run for those congressional seats that open. And so it creates this this domino effect. Um, And the difference is, is um, the primary is coming up this June which is basically tomorrow in um, election time. (laughs) And so um, candidates have the next couple of months to uh, get their name out there before uh, the voters of their base to see if they could um, be advanced to the runoff, which will probably be in August, especially for the Republican tickets for particularly for the open seat with uh, Senator Enhoff, there'll likely be um, a runoff and then the actual um, election in November. And so on top of that, we have the gubernatorial race. We have many of our state level races that are open, like state superintendent and other things. And so um, one of the things I want to lift as we're going through our list of, you know, where what we know this week of where the dominoes are shaking out, um, there is an official announcement that former Congresswoman Kendra Horn has officially entered the race for U.S. Senate. Uh, One of the things that we were joking about in our messages with Andy, Scott, and myself is that there's potentially two horns in both Senate races. So uh, 
former Congresswoman Kendra Horn will be running in the open seat um, that's vacated by Senator Inhofe. And Madison Horn uh, is continuing to run in the seat challenging uh, Senator James Lankford. Yeah, I don't even know how to start to calculate like the impact of having the same name as someone running, especially for like the same kind of position, right? Like, is there is there good bleed over? I would imagine, right, that Kendra Horn's presence on the ballot would be beneficial to Madison Horn, who is lesser, lesser known, right? Um, but yeah, I so mean, when I worked on the Hill, one of the issues that we saw uh, was there was a Hearn and a Horn, right? Oh. <laughs> Right. That always caused confusion among folks is that one little letter difference, right? right. Um, so that is going to be interesting, especially because there is rumor that um, Congressman Hearn is considering the race for the open seat for uh, Senator Inhofe's seat. So that would be interesting to have a Hearn, a Horn, and a Horn into yeah. these Senate races. You know, I don't have this link, but I'm pretty sure that I saw this week that uh, the Congressman Hearn put the kibosh on that and said he was not going to run. Okay. But I I need to, we need to make a spreadsheet, I think, to like track this stuff because I. Well, Reese Gorman has been tracking it in his spreadsheet. So that's the, the source that I've been using as far as looking at, you know, who are the people who are most likely to run and then the folks who have announced that they're running for different seats. Yeah. Well, God bless the free press, right? Yeah, so that's a big deal. Someone else that we have, I don't know, I will say kind of joked about or at least um, postulated could potentially run is former Oklahoma Attorney General and EPA Director Scott Pruitt. Uh, our friend Scott Melson will be sad to miss out on this Pruitt watch uh, today, although he's the one that sent me this link. But CBS News actually reported this morning that uh, three sources – um, said that that Scott Pruitt was contemplating a run for Inhofe seat. That doesn't mean he's necessarily going to run, but we'll, I guess we'll find out in about a month. Indeed. Um, in addition to Scott Pruitt and former Congresswoman Horn, um, there is rumor that uh, the director of the Oklahoma Department of Veterans Affairs, Joel Kinsel may be contemplating a run for governor. Um, but one of the challenges is that he has been a little bit of a tiff with the governor's office because he's all but accused the governor's staff or his campaign team of accessing his computer without authorization. Did you read, have you read this article, Bailey, on non-doc? I have not read it fully, but it sounds, as I'm skimming, it's it's interesting that he's being accused of some malicious activity, you know, yeah. being identified through his uh, computer and especially the timing, you know, if he is considering a run for finding malicious activity. <laughs> yeah. So that's, uh, and I, I, we, as always, will link to all of this stuff in the show notes, but it was, a, it's a really interesting story where director Kinsel basically is like, I don't know, I'm not saying that they did it, but something happened to my computer to one of my staff, someone, there was an intrusion and it happens to be around the time that rumors would have gotten to the governor that I was maybe considering a run for governor. I'm not saying that I am or I'm not. It was all like a real kind of cloak and daggery thing. Um, and it, not to be make light of it, I mean, but it, it seemed almost a little comical, just like the way that it was like framed and playing out. I guess we'll find out what happens, but that would be, I, I've heard for a while rumors that he may run for governor as well. So, um, not that my rumors are any more valid than, uh, you know, what non-doc reports, but it just, it, I guess it wasn't under that close of wraps if even I was hearing about it out here. So uh, I guess we'll find out that governor's race is certainly um, heating up as well. Well, and Andy, one thing I was going to add is that it's not uncommon for campaigns to do their oppositional research on different, now, Accessing a state computer is a whole nother issue, um, but it's not uncommon, especially because um, the former attorney general was uh, Mike Hunter was primed to be a candidate for governor and has not only stepped down in his role in AG, you know, within the past, what, year and a half or so, uh, but, you know, 
stepped down because of an accusation that's linked. And so um, that's very important during campaign seasons that when you decide to put your name on the ballot, make sure that you are aware and know of any and every activity that you are engaging in because it can become public information just that quickly. <laughs> that's right. All those skeletons come out of the closet, right? Uh, well, one other um, race we wanted to highlight, I think, is um, the race for the state superintendent of public instruction. Currently, it's Joy Hoffmeister. Of course, she's running for governor. Um, and so I think just today, the former teacher of the year, um, is it Jenna or Gina? Jenna. Okay. Jenna Nelson uh, an, hasn't officially announced that she's entering the race, but she filed some paperwork with the ethics commission. That's like a precursor. So um, I think the Oklahoman that reported on it basically said, I mean, we, this seems like it. Um, she will be running as a Democrat. Uh, there are three Republicans who are vying for that party's nomination as well. Uh, there's Ryan Walters, of course, who is Stitt's education secretary and was also in the news quite a bit this week. We don't have time to go into that. Um, April Grace, who is currently the superintendent of Shawnee Public Schools. And then John Cox, who is superintendent of Peg's Public Schools. And I don't even know where that is. But I know that he ran for the state superintendent the last two times it was up, in 2014 and 2018. And both of those times he ran as a Democrat. He is running as a Republican this time, though. And I'll add, Andy, that what makes Jenna's run so important for this race is that it ensures that the voters have an opportunity to have a say in November, because otherwise only those who are registered Republicans uh, would have a say out of who would either get the majority in June in this position or who would win the runoff in August for state superintendent. And so now that Jenna has entered a race, it nearly guarantees that there'll be an election in November. I just Googled it. Pegs is out east of Tulsa, out by Locust Grove for anyone. For listeners who were driving around listening, I don't know where Pegs is either. Now you do, east of Tulsa. All right. Well, um, then one other story that I haven't even dug into, but I thought we probably should at least mention it. Um, is the story on Nondoc that's, I think, really fascinating about some alleged corruption involving like $2 million that were embezzled out in western Oklahoma, um, involves two county commissioners, one from Kiowa County, one from Tillman County, and this like regional engineering district that exists out there. And they, the reason that I want to mention it is I mean, it's too complicated to go into, but just today I was listening to an episode of another excellent podcast called The Very Okay Podcast that is produced by the Oklahoma Historical Society. It's hosted by uh, their current executive director, Trey Thompson, and their former director, Bob Blackburn, two dudes who honestly know more about Oklahoma than probably half the state put together. Um, the episode this week is... Um, entitled at war with corruption and it details the uh like major corruption scandals back from the 1960s and 1980s involving county commissioners uh the political climate in which those things happened and an interview with bill price who was the former u.s attorney for the western district of oklahoma and who prosecuted the county commissioners back in all that corruption scandal thing and it's absolutely wild i i've known that this happened i didn't know much about it but there was like a claim in there that at some point in the 60s um the county commissioners estimated openly like admitted that 50 percent of the materials that they had received uh, or said that they received at county government in oklahoma between statehood and the 1960s right like a 60-year period that half of the materials were never actually received so like they talk about how just corruption was endemic and almost expected in this process. It was mind blowing. So I'm looking forward to finishing that episode. Um, it's the very okay podcast has a, it's yellow as a Buffalo. And Andy, one thing I wanted to mention while we're talking about uh, the Oklahoma historical society um, trait before he became the director of that uh, was leading the efforts to restore 
in a much needed way our Oklahoma State Capitol building. I'm sure that one of our guests would be able to attest what the condition of the Capitol was prior to um, that restoration project. Um, and because we're at um, the time of near completion of, of that, I believe it was a four or five year, probably even longer than that project worth $250 million, but trust me, it's well spent. Um, they're going to do a Capitol Museum grand opening and ribbon cutting to celebrate the Capitol building. I got to hear Trait speak about the history of the Capitol building. And one of the things he mentioned was um, when the Capitol building was completed in 1917, they didn't have a real, you know, celebration of the building's opening because it was during the beginning of World War I. And the focus at the time was rightfully about what was happening in our country. And so this will be one of the first times that there's a celebration of a completed Capitol building and this time in its beautiful restoration. And so that's something that's gonna be cool on March 22nd at 10 a.m. So just wanted to throw that out there. Okay, well, this is probably a good transition into our guests who are nodding anxiously of like, yes, please come talk to me. That's why we're here. Well, every March, as I'm sure many of our listeners know, um, the month of March is nationally designated as Women's History Month. Um, it used to be by Congress. Now it's by presidential, not proclamation. Maybe it is proclamation. Uh, anyway, uh, it's a, you know, a time in which we celebrate the contributions that women have made to the United States and recognize the specific achievements that women have made over the course of American history in a variety of fields. And since this podcast is about government and civic engagement, we thought it would be most appropriate to talk to some of the female leaders in those fields. In addition to Bailey, she's here every week. Um, but we wanted to invite some other folks on uh, and conveniently they wanted to come on, which is always a great combination. Uh, and so joining us today are Oklahoma House Representative Marilyn Bell and Norman City Council member Lauren Schuler. And before you give their introductions, it's just so exciting for me uh, to be able to have this conversation with the representative and council member because way back before either of them thought about their political futures, we all worked in the same building together um, at the University of Oklahoma. And so it's just really special to see them um, put into practice the things that they've preached to other people about civic engagement to now step into these elected roles um, to serve the people. And so there's no better people to talk to us about Women's History Month than Representative Bell and Council Member Schuler. So that's exactly right, Bailey. Representative Marilyn Bell is a fifth generation Oklahoman and an art director with over 15 years of experience in publication design. She was first elected to the State House in 2018 to represent House District 45, which is East Norman. And she is the first woman of color to ever represent her hometown. Welcome to the show, Representative. Thank you, Andy. Hi, Bailey. Good to see you both and hear you and delighted to be here. It's exciting. Uh, and we'll talk more about this later, but Representative Bell has her own podcast as well. <laughs> a baby podcast, uh, two episodes in, not 200. So, well, hey, we all got to start somewhere. That's True. great. True. Uh, and then Lauren Schuler is the director of the New Leadership and Civic Engagement at Carl Albert Congressional Research and Study Center at OU. She coordinates the NEW, which is what stands for the National Education for Women's Leadership Program. And that program seeks to address the historical underrepresentation of women in politics and public service, as well as civic engagement more broadly on campus. In addition, she helps organize and advise other programs that are also housed at the Carl Albert Center, such as the Pipeline to Politics, Civic Engagement Fellows, and Oklahoma Votes, which is a student organization focused on voter registration, education, and mobilization. Lauren also represents Ward 2 on the Norman City Council and serves 
on the uh, the Community Planning and Transportation Committee, as well as the Oversight Committee. Welcome to the show, Council Member. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm so excited to be here um, with everyone. One of these days, we'll have an office, and the world will be safe again, and we can do this again in person, and that'll be even more exciting. Can we still wear pajamas when we come in person? Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Well, and what we used to do is we would have, since it's a a Friday afternoon, you know, near the end of the work week, we'd have a glass of bourbon in our let's fix this bourbon glasses and and have a good show. So hopefully we'll get back to those days. Yeah. We had a couch. It was a it was a cushy thing there in a borrowed office with no windows that we have. <laughs> well, uh uh um rep- representative and council member, thank you so much for being here. Um maybe uh representative Bell, let's start with you and okay. tell us a little bit about cuz I your your background in women's leadership extends far beyond your involvement with the state legislature. Can you tell us a little bit about um, how you got to where you are today of, of being in the state house, um, but some of the steps along the way and, and why this month is particularly important to you. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I, as Bailey said, worked at the university of Oklahoma for around 12 years. Um, during that time, I was the art director at a literary publication that was published there. And it was really my, my first job. I was interning there before I started working there full time. I graduated. And the day after I graduated, I, I took a job there. So I was really committed to the mission at that organization. I love the fact that there were women, uh, to work with that were, you know, bright and um, commanding and um, excited about the work that we were doing. So um, I spent my 20s there is kind of the way that I think about it. My 20, well, I guess I should say 30s too. But anyway, I, I, I spent formative time there as a, as a young professional and, um, you know, really learned a lot when I was there. I had um, a child uh, while I was working there. And that moment, I say that because that was really a catalyst for me to stop thinking about myself as an Oklahoman and what my needs are and start thinking about this new little Oklahoman and um, focusing on what his future might be like. So uh, from the beginning, I've talked to people as a candidate, but even before then about how I stayed for I have stayed in Oklahoma for my people, for my family, um, for the people in my life. But I knew that there were things that weren't going so great. But I was one of those young people who, uh, you know, I was in a healthy majority of people, I think, who just weren't focused on the why behind the things that I didn't like or the how they got to be that way in terms of policy. I wasn't thinking about it through that lens. I was just thinking, gosh, I wish we had more interesting restaurants to eat at. Wouldn't it be great if we had more concert venues or, you know, like these kind of things that we talk about in a cliche way that young professionals want all the time. So after we had my son and I started thinking about what is education going to be like, what, um, why am I having struggles with um, other things like childcare I was one of uh, many women who took like four weeks total off for maternity leave because that's all I had. Um, that's all I had saved up. So, um, you know, got back to work pretty quickly and, and was adapting to having a new child at the same time. So anyway, long story short, I got more involved because I <laughs> I took the opportunity to go next door to Lauren's office at um, the Carl Albert Center. And I thought, you know, these women are doing the kind of things that really get people involved at the right level, it seems like. And Lauren's predecessor at the time said, well, you should come to Pipeline to Politics. And I thought, oh, well, I know I'm interested in like how, you know, in sort of like a schoolhouse rock kind of way of how bills become (laughs) law, but I'm not. I could never run for office, even though I really want to. And that sounds amazing, but I couldn't do that. you know. And so many women say that it's so common. Yes. Yes. So, so common, Bailey. And I said it for years and years and years, like knowing that Lauren was right next door 
facilitating that possibility for so many other women. But I still said to myself, no, you can't do that. Right. So I went to Pipeline. That's at the time at which I really met Lauren. I knew we were working next to each other, but I didn't know exactly what they were doing over there. <laughs> so she was responsible at that time for really putting Pipeline together. And when I got there, uh, I think it was at the Embassy Suites, Lauren, like here in Norman. I said, well, this lady knows how to put together a binder. I think that we should really be best friends. Um, don't make it weird, though. Just keep it cool. And, you know, uh, we started having lunches together and stuff like that. And really, really talking about these things. And, of course, on the other side, at, at home, I'm having my own personal journey of sort of worrying what Matthew's life is going to be like. So I started getting more involved in grassroots organizations like Together Oklahoma through the Policy Institute. I started going to their meetings. They had the best snacks. So I thought, well, I mean, bonus, you know, even if I'm not sure exactly what we're doing, I get to have snacks. Um, but I really met a lot of, you know, what I now consider lifelong friends doing that, um, who were really engaged in the process and showed me um, that it, it is so easy to get involved if you really want to, you know, so they, they helped remove a lot of barriers for me just as an advocate for the things that I really cared about. And some of those other people that I met were women who were also working at OU at the time. So we had this one really amazing lunch. I can say that I didn't make it back to work on time after this lunch because I don't work there anymore, but I took like a really long lunch. <laughs> Because we talked and sort of um, made this pact together that if one of us left OU, we would all do it and we'd start a consulting firm to help other women run for office. So that was really what I thought the appropriate sort of wheelhouse for me would be. I'll be behind the scenes. I'll be helping other people. I'll use my skills in graphic design and branding and event planning to um, to help people, to help women especially run for office because we want more women in the state legislature specifically. At that time, we already had one, Claudia Griffith, who was serving in East Norman, but I got the call um, from um, then not a Congresswoman Horn or Congressperson Horn, um, just a friend, Kendra called me and said, well, you know, she's, uh, Claudia is not going to run for house anymore. She's going to run for Senate. And I thought, oh, that's really great because we'll find somebody right here in our own backyard to run for office. This is super, you know, we'll work on a campaign that's like right here in our neighborhood. And we're so excited. And she said, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying find someone. I'm saying you are the someone. And that you need to reevaluate that really quickly. And this was maybe, maybe a month after we started the consulting firm. So I thought, no way. You know, I, I can't do that to my business partners. We've gone all in on this. We're all quitting our jobs. We all want to help other women. But I can't, I can't do that right now. And I then, said yes. I said yes way. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Well, and Lauren and Kendra and everybody else said yes way um, because I, I think that they could, it was very validating because I think they could see what was really in my heart and what I wanted to do um, and what I would be well suited to do, which is, um, you know, take more of a uh, front of house <laughs> as a comparison position um, and use my skills in that way. So, you know, eventually, I think I think it was Kendra who said, do you want to sit there for 12 years and watch somebody else do the job that you want? Or do you want to go for it now? And that's how she got me. Because I'm just competitive enough to think, <laughs> no, I obviously, I don't want to watch somebody else do it. I want to be the person who's doing it. Um, and representative at that time, that's when former Congresswoman Horn was running Women Lead Oklahoma. Yes. So where yes. that was part of her work was helping to get more women in 
elected positions across the state. So yes, absolutely. So she, it worked. She did it. <laughs> <laughs> along with Lauren and a lot of other friends and family who said, you know, we, we believe in you. We, you should definitely do this. Now, this reminds me, I, I heard a statistic several years ago from either someone at Women Lead or Sally's List or one of those organizations about the number of times that a woman has to be asked, right? Like directly ask, will you run for office before they will say it? And it's much higher. Like, I think most guys are just like, wake up and I'm like, I think I'll run for office today. Right? <laughs> and, uh, but it's like seven times or something. Do you, do you remember what that number is? I yeah, say, that I, might be a great transition for Lauren. Cause that's what she teaches. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I don't, I don't know the, the exact number, but it is, yeah, it's relatively high. It's something around, you know, that number, um, of, you know, seven, eight, multiple times and not just from the same person, Right. Like they need multiple different people to ask and to tell and to say, you should do this. You you have the skill set, you have the qualities, you know, you're smart enough. You are all of the things that we need. You're ready. Um, and to kind of dispel all of the negative things that you're saying in the back of your mind, like the imposter syndrome, they're like, well, I don't check all of these boxes. I don't know all of the things. I don't have all of the qualifications that I think that I would need, um, but women think that they have to be all things, and not to you know to you know get down on our our counterpart male counterparts, but like they wake up or they're born sometimes with just saying like, well, I meet like half of these things and I can figure out the rest. So, and that goes for job applications. That goes for really any kind of category. It's not just running for office. Like men decide like, oh, well, I can do that job. I can figure that out. So like, I'm smart enough. So I'm going to put in an application. I'm going to put my resume in. I'm going to do that. Well, and I thought that the example that Representative Bell gave us just moments ago through her story of, you know, how qualified she is and, and, and was in, the, in that time of looking at let me run the campaign of whoever this person's going to be. And the reality was the person was her and other people saw that in her and a number of people based on her story. So I think that's just the perfect example. And I'm so glad that Representative Bell started with her story for us to be able to connect with this point that, you know, women feel like other people have all the qualifications around them when the reality is they have everything that they need to be able to run. I mean, to be fair, like I do this work and have been doing this work for over a decade. You know, I started as a graduate student um, working with, you know, at the Carl Albert Center with the women's leadership programs, doing all of that stuff. I'm not originally from Oklahoma. And so this was really my entry point into kind of Oklahoma politics and the structure here. And so it's taken me you know, some more time than others to really get the lay of the land. But I've been doing this work. I know the research. I I speak to all of these <laughs> the women that are doing this and encouraging other students. And you know, you're you're qualified. You're you're ready to do this now. And you know, saying all of these things. But while simultaneously saying to myself in the back of my mind, like that's not for me. That's for somebody else. I'm going to do this back end work. My work is really in elevating others to to get into these leadership positions. And like, that's how I'm going to be a part of this system um, is pushing women to be leaders in nonprofit, the nonprofit sector or running for office or getting into policy positions, um, you know, with uh, state departments or working in Congress or you know, working on the Hill with congressional offices or, you know, whatever it may be on more boards and commissions, applying for like getting more women into all of these spaces. I was like, that's going to be my role. Um, and I think at the, at the end of the day, it just becomes like when seats open, when dominoes start to fall, like you were talking about earlier, it's like you kind of start to look around and you're like, okay, wait a second. If I'm looking, for, I keep looking for somebody, but why am I not looking for me? maybe I'm the person. And that's kind of what we were kept telling, you know, Representative Bell, like, it's you, that you're here. 
take, take this jump and it does really feel like you're jumping off of a cliff. Um, and I'm a little bit closer to having just jumped off that cliff, but, <laughs> um, you know, I think that even, even the women that are here in the work and that know all of the things about why women don't do it, how it's more challenging, we are all still so in our head. Well, I think one of the reasons why is because, you know, Lauren and I both worked behind the scenes for a long time before we ran for anything. For me, it was because I could picture myself doing a good job without the scrutiny of it. And, you know, to Lauren's point, men tend to think, yes, I can do half of those things because that's what society and culture and and business culture especially will allow. I think that women, especially in politics, are held to a higher standard for what makes them a good candidate, for what makes them qualified. And the validation that I needed externally from other people was because I worried that well, yeah, I, I secretly, you know, I know I'm qualified to do it, but will other people look at me? Will they look at that walk card and think, oh, you know, if I if I put X, Y, and Z that I've done in the past, is that going to be enough? Or, you know, it's it's the same kind of thing that keeps people from running because their families don't look, uh, you know, platonic enough, or they, you know, have things that happened in their past, or maybe they got a divorce or, you know, whatever, because we have this idea in our minds, we've been very conditioned to think of women, especially as needing to have checked all these boxes. So I needed to know that other people felt that I checked them first <laughs> outside of, am I just qualified enough? Because I mean, I knew I, knew I could do it. And I had that moment of going to the Capitol and looking around and thinking, yeah, I think I could do this. I mean, it, it doesn't, you know, um, of course, you don't know what you don't know. It's one of those kind of um, situations where nobody knows how to be a rep until they've done it. Um, but I thought I could figure it out. Um, I just I worried about that higher standard. That's sure. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Lauren, can I ask you? Um, so being a, a member of the Norman city council, you were appointed. You didn't have to run yet. Right. Right. So I was appointed in May, um, of 2021 to fill a vacancy. Um, and then I did, I had to turn right around and run. Um, the election was, so I was just elected That's right, like last month or something. Right? Yeah. In February, on February 8th. So, um, so I was elected to my first full term um in february so yes initially appointed to fill out the a vacancy of a term but then ran an election while serving so that was um kind of a bit of a whirlwind um to be honest and with a full-time job yeah and with a full-time 40 hour a week job so I, I felt like during the campaign especially um, you know, I'm still getting, I'm still figuring the whole, you know, city council thing out, right? I was appointed in May, we file in December, um, and then my election is in February. And so, yeah, yes, I have figured some things out by that, you know, by December, you know, it had been, you know, seven, eight months. Um, but there's a lot of things going on and things come at you really fast in municipal government. It's not, it's not the same as, you know, with the state legislature where they've got session, it's confined to, you know, February through May. And that's not to say that they're not doing work outside of session because they absolutely are doing work. And I think that that's a, a myth. <laughs> if anybody thinks that, uh, you know, our state legislators are not doing things in the summer or in the fall before session, that's not true. They're doing constituent work. They're e either running a new campaign. They're working on legislation. They're working or the lobbyists are bothering them like me. Right. Like, cause I tell people, no, my real work is between May and yeah. December. Yeah. <laughs> right. The real work is being done kind of on the ground in those months. So that's not to say, but like we're, we're having, and then to say city council, right. We have two meetings a month where there's voting meetings, right. We meet on the second and fourth Tuesday. Um, but 
all of the other Tuesdays, we have study sessions that we go to, and then we have committee meetings on Thursdays. So to say that we only have two meetings a month, that's not true. Um, and then there's constituent work and emails and phone calls and, you know, going to all of these things. And so I'm doing that, right, working my full-time job and then filing to run my first campaign <laughs> on top of all of that. Um, I don't recommend that as a, as a way to get into all of this. That's um, kind of really like jumping right into the fire. Um, but it, it's doable and I did it. And um, so if anybody is thinking about um, work-life balance or like what that looks like, that's a myth too. Like that's not a thing. Um, it's not, everything is as equal at that time. It's like, you know, it, it changes, but um, yeah. Well, you're not selling it very well, but. <laughs> mean it's worth it i just yeah i just mean i mean it to be real like it's a lot of hard work and i think that um i think that people realize that but it is it is so worth it and i think that you know what was so motivating is i don't need like constant reinforcement of validation but like i need some nuggets to hold on to and i think the campaign really was able to bring that to me in a way that was tangible to be able to knock on doors and to talk to voters and to, you know, get that one door that, you know, you feel like you really connected with somebody and it made a difference or you were able to work on something for a constituent that like, like I worked on, I worked on getting school or like speed limit flashing signs that are permanent um, in front of one of our school zones. So they already had the flashing lights for school zone. But now um, in front of the school, it has um, kind of a speed detector that shows you what your speed is, you know, 24 seven, 365 um, to help curb the amount of speeding that was going, you know, between that school and the residential area. So like things like that, seeing someone come to you and then seeing all of those things to fruition really is the work at the end of the day. And I think what we get into it for, right? Like seeing, how we can make a change and make a difference. And at the municipal level, like that's really what it is. It's like, did I fix a pothole? Did I help get a sidewalk? Did I, you know, make sure that trash is picked up and <laughs> at the right time? Are we, you know, we're working on a, we've got a bridge that failed. And so making sure that like that gets emergency uh, funding so that we can get that fixed as, as fast as possible because it's a, you know, route right into the university and through a major corridor, um, like, those are real things for every people's lives. Like yeah. it is so impactful. Well, you know, we often, we say a few mantras on this show. One is decisions are made by those who show up. Right. And I think we often frame that in the context of voters, right? You got to show up and vote, but it also means that like, if you show up and you run for office, if you serve an office, then you have a voice, you have a different kind of vote. You get to make decisions at the highest level of you know whatever level of government and you know what uh you know what president biden might decide probably on the whole has less impact on people's day-to-day -day life than what um what representative bell votes on and even she probably has less impact on day-to-day -day stuff than what uh what you do as a city council member right like yeah. i interact i live in oklahoma city and I tweeted at the city twice in the past two weeks about a stoplight that the turn signal doesn't work. And I turn there every day to take my daughter to daycare and it drives me bananas. And then a whole bunch of potholes that came out of nowhere. And it was just uh, really rattled our car when we were driving. And I, so my wife is driving. So I quickly fired off a tweet at our very supportive Oklahoma City staff that managed that to the action center. And they replied and they followed up later with the, the number. And the next day there was a truck out there. Now that's unusual that it was that fast, but I was like, I'm, I felt like, Hey, it made a difference. But if you want to see your government at work, it's definitely the local level for sure. Absolutely. And it really, I will, I will argue pretty much all day, every day that the municipal government is the most important government to direct services to people that make an impact on your regular everyday life yeah um 
because well, it is those services like and potholes and i'll blame that all day on this oklahoma weather that is you know hot cold hot cold so expansion contraction like that that's what causes our potholes oh so. for sure i when i was younger i lived in minnesota for a few years uh in like middle school and the joke up there is that they have two seasons winter and road repair because, <laughs> well you can't work on the roads in the winter and the ice and the salt do so much damage up there yes. and they have it down to like a, a science i mean they came in and redid every street in all of the residential areas like the whole neighbor not just our neighborhood but all the adjoining neighborhoods in like a three-week period they just came through and like week one was dig it all up week two was put the curbs in week three was pour the asphalt and it was just even as like a you know 15 year old i was like wow this is impressive back in yeah. texas we didn't have that kind of efficiency with roads i-35 has been under construction my entire forever life. forever well, it's like how oklahoma does you know repair for utilities post you know tornado right and so like it's very um assembly line like they've got all of the trucks they like, got everything in line like it just depends on what you're used to i think and what part of you know the country you're in yeah um, like what gets routine and what gets easier. Like we're not great at that here. We're not great at snow removal. I'll just put that out there. Yeah. Well, on the front of the types of people that are best to be in elective office, one trait that I want to lift is that the best people in elective office are the ones who are problem solvers. And women tend to be excellent problem solvers. And I feel like both of you, representative and council member, are examples of people who see challenges that are out there and want to find ways to connect the dots to, to find solutions on issues. And so when we're thinking about, you know, or people who are listening to the pod right now are thinking about, you know, what traits are best to run for office what are those things that you both would recommend as people are listening who are considering running? So definitely, like I mentioned, problem solving, but what other skills are, are best for people wanting to serve? So I'll start by saying that I think yeah, I often talk to people in other leadership positions, whether they're city related or at our public schools or at the Capitol about that baseline of caring. Everybody who runs for office cares about something or someone. Um, but above and beyond the caring, there needs to be a certain level of tenacity, I think, that you're not going to allow the slightest thing to thwart you, which I guess is my way of saying that it takes a thick skin, as people would say. You know, because um, every elected leader is going to get that criticism at some point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and especially to Lauren's part before about city being where the rubber really meets the road for a lot of people in their day to day. That's why I think we see so much passion in city politics. You know, I've seen people in the grocery store go up to other council people from Norman and just start to lay in right away that doesn't happen <laughs> to, to me. And I don't, maybe it's my vibe. I don't know, but I just mean, you know, that it's not as personal to them, the issues that we tackle are sort of, you know, once removed in a way policy wise. So anyway, I, I think that tenacity is really important and the ability to not take everything so seriously because it is really a marathon and not a sprint as much as I would like to sprint through that, that change that we're all after. It takes a lot of time to get your bearings at first and sort of, you know, get it, get control of what situation you've just been <laughs> thrown into. So that adaptability is important as well. But I think you raise a great point representative, because there's a lot of issues that have been worked on for decades. Right. Like yeah. I even think about, for example, like um, we were in that bad budget position mm -hmm. years ago. 
it took 30 years <laughs> to get new revenue sources, right? And so right. Um, a lot of the issues are truly the long game at the state level. Yeah, the grocery tax that we're considering this year has been something that uh, Democrats, especially Leader Virgin, have been pushing for and doing interim studies on and, and whatnot. But even before that, I found out the other day that um, that current Judge Balkman, that Balkman who used to hold the seat in House District 45 before me, and has been a wonderful mentor to me in that um, capacity, he was working on grocery tax too. You know, so, and I didn't even know that. We talk, you know, pretty frequently and I didn't realize. So people on both sides of the aisle can often have the same idea and have to, <laughs> you know, volley it back and forth for a really long time before anything happens. So yeah, I, I think having that patience and, and persistence and tenacity is important. But I would also like to say, just to circle back for a minute to what um, Bailey and Lauren were talking about before, in terms of, you know, we, we want to have people who are like us at the table. The people, like Andy said, that are there in those positions get to make the decisions and make the votes. But I've been thinking a lot lately about how we create spaces that are actually um, not just safe, but healthy for the people that we encourage to run. You know, we, we see the good things in people, those good qualities, like you're asking about, Bailey, that make us want to encourage other people to run. But it can be very tough. You know, Andy said before, we're not really selling it very well. Well, you know, it, it, it's hard to sell, honestly, sometimes. And I think especially for women and people of color and LGBTQ plus folks or other people who have been or have ever been marginalized, um, you know, we really need to be honest about what the process is like and what it could be like for them. And the climate. Yeah, 100 percent. Climate, be very supportive of of them not just up until the point that they get there. Because once you get there, I mean, the campaign was great, you know, because people are supportive and they want to help you and they're, you know, cheering you on. Once you get there, sometimes you get, hey, we see you. Thank you for posting what you did or for saying what you did on the House floor. Thank you for fighting the good fight. But sometimes it's really not a good fight. It's a really messy, unfair fight sometimes. And so I think the more honest we can be with people about that to give them the tools that they need, in addition to all the tools and skills that they already bring to the table, the better off, the better off we'll be. It's Women's History Month and there's still way more work to do. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like this is this is a conversation that I mean, Marilyn and I have had repeatedly. I mean, since I mean, I think before she ran, while she was running, when I was considering running, while I was running, while I'm, you know, now we're broke both serving and um, you know, spoiler alert, we're best friends. So like this is like <laughs> I mean, like we were in this together. And I think what's been really powerful for us as best friends and women who are doing this work kind of on different stages um, is the support system that we build. And I know that, you know, Bailey knows about, you know, what new leadership does. And I think that a lot, a lot of this has changed for me since I have, you know, gotten into not that like the message has changed, but like the, um, I guess just the, the way that being authentic about how we share about what this is gonna look like for women. Um, it's personal to me now because I have, I have actually walked this road as an elected official. Um, I've, I've run a campaign, I've seen what it looks like, I sit, you know, in a position, I take votes, I take the hits and, you know, the 
you know, praise when it, when it comes, but um, I don't think that anybody can necessarily prepare you for what it's going to feel like when you get your first troll on social media or <laughs> when, you know, you have made a particularly difficult vote and you feel like you have done so much research and you've really tried to dig into all of the details and do the best thing that you feel is, is possible with all of this, you know, coming at you. And then, you know, you get, you get all of this hate or, you know, whatever about it, or you just, you didn't make the right decision or um, it wasn't good enough or the vote that you took, you know, you didn't push hard enough to get more. Um, and I think some of these traits that I think women are so good at that you kind of just circle back to that is that like, we are so, so much better at compromising and finding solutions back to this problem solving that are going to be better than what is now, but also realizing that that's a stepping stone to a better future. Um, and, you know, that we've got to think about this long game. And sometimes we've got to take a step in the direction of the long game or in, in the direction of a better future before we can get everything that we want. And I think that sometimes holding out for everything, we're going to be waiting a lot longer to get there because so much has to change. Attitudes, culture, structures, hierarchy, like all of those things. And and back to this conversation too about, about traits, I think that there's no like perfect elected official. There's no perfect person. We need so many different things. And this is this is the message that will never change for me is that we we need difference in all aspects, whatever that looks like. Like, so it's like for me, it's been you know, being able to like really dig into stuff. Like I really care about, you know, what are the details? I want to know all of the sides. I want to talk to all of the people. I want to make the best decision, but like that might not be somebody else's role and that's okay. We all need to walk our path. And I think that's a, that's a characteristic that I do really want to see in elected officials is like knowing what your role is, knowing what your place is and being willing to walk that and not deviating it, deviating from it because somebody else is telling you that you need to be more, or you need to do it differently, or you need to be something else. It's like, know who you are, know what role you have to play and continue to walk in that space. It's okay. And show people that there's a different way that things can be done. Yes, there is more than one right answer oftentimes. And I think having that lens and understanding in politics makes you a stronger leader to be able to get more done when you're able to see it's not my way or no way. <laughs> well, and, and Lauren, one thing I wanted to lift um, is that, you know, I, I was Lauren's first graduate assistant um, when she was involved and still is involved with the, the Carl Albert Center. And we had the opportunity to watch Cindy Simon Rosenthal lead as the director of the Carl Albert Center, but also as mayor of the city of Norman, right? And I'll never forget that I, as a graduate assistant, uh, we traveled for uh, a new leadership institute to Oklahoma City to meet at the state capitol. And hours later, a devastating tornado hit more and Norman. And I remember watching Cindy jump into mayor mode in front of us because she had to talk on the phone with city officials and the news and other folks because it took us three hours to get back home because we couldn't take um, 35 back home because of the destruction, right? Um, and we were able just to see the different flexibilities and, and being able to move quickly into action, right? And I think what you said, Lauren, is so powerful about having different skill sets and knowledges and gifts to be able to um, do what's needed in the moment for, for that type of leadership, right? Um, and so I think it's special that not only, you know, did we have somebody like that leading 
the Carl Albert Center and then as mayor, but also seeing you now leading the a Women's Leadership Institute and stepping into your role as council member to be able to help be that bridge builder, to be that person who's studying the issues, to be that you know person wanting to build consensus on issues. That's that's a critical thing. Here, so, here. I can't believe you um, share that story because that story is like such. It's like seared in my mind because it was my first year as a full time staff member running new leadership. Um, and so I had no idea what Cindy was doing because I was on the phone with like our staff canceling, you know, a reception that we had and, you know, <laughs> talking to, you know, um, the house mom at the house that we were going back to and like, are we getting dinner and how are we getting home? And I'm on, you know, the phone with the bus driver and, you know, are, are you safe? Are you okay? Where are you? Like, when are we getting home? And you know, I felt like I was out of my mind, like, and then also like we're downstairs in the state capitol, right, with like all of the elected officials and all of the staffers and, you know, the students are, you know, everywhere. And then there's like- And worried little, about their families, right? Exactly, there's yeah. this like little TV. So like I watched none of the news coverage from that because I'm in the in a corner, you know, and I'm just like checking on everybody, like, are the students okay? Is everyone all right? And like, we had students who, you know, had family members that were in the path of the tornado and like lost everything. And that was such a wild experience, but also a really formative one for <laughs> so many reasons. Um, so it's crazy. But I think all of those go into the type of leader that you are for the city of Norman, right? So all of those things are just critical. Wow, thanks. I really appreciate that. You know, um, as much as I joked a couple of times about how you're selling it to people, I think authenticity matters a great deal, right? Uh, and I, I am not a woman, but I know women, <laughs> and um, to the extent that anybody does. Um, and I think I, if you are speaking to women that are listening to the podcast, who maybe have have considered or in the back of their mind are considering running for office at some level, it's those kinds of authentic stories that probably resonate most deeply, right? And Andy, I want to lift too. We did not say you had to have a certain professional background. You did not hear you had to have a political science degree or a PhD from whatever institution, right? Or a you law heard, degree, because that's what everyone thinks. Yes. You have to have a law degree. It's I truly don't. about those. Everyone doesn't. Yes. Yes. hundred percent. Like our two guests today are just great examples of, of what Andy just summarized, that authenticity, that care, that tenacity, right? That ability to problem solve, to be a consensus builder. Those are the people that we need to run and be on the front lines. And there are so many women out there who have those skills and characteristics, whether you're stay-at-home mom, whether you're a teacher, whether you're whatever profession it may be, you have the capability to be able to embody those skills and use them in a way that's going to move our state forward in the way that Representative Bill and Council Member Schuler do. Well, and I'll add, I don't- oh, Sorry, go ahead. No, you're fine. I'll add, I don't know anyone who is in elected office that would tell you not to run. Like, no matter how challenging it could be or, you know, how uh, just rank the trolls might be or whatever it is, everyone I know that's in elected office feels deeply that it's worth it, right? And maybe it's long hours, maybe it's lots of work, it's stress, those things, but it is also deeply important, right? You are able to affect change at a much higher level, whatever that is, city level, county, state, national, right? You're able to affect change that can be like an enduring change, right? That is something beyond yourself. And I think, I think too often, in my opinion, we focus on politics and not on public service, right? Um, and, you know, one of the themes that I hear from both of you is about the service aspect of it. 
And I think most people, I would wager, I haven't polled this, but I would guess that most people feel that there is a responsibility there for public servants, right? And public servants aren't just like, you know, city employees who pick up your trash. Like that is also a form of public service, but um, the, the, duty the responsibility of civil service and we and we certainly see some conversations about people who do this poorly at the national level right um events like january 6th you know those kinds of things uh, and we don't often get to celebrate the stories of people who do it really well like bailey talking about uh mayor rosenthal on the tornado right like how people step in then in the times that it matters most to the people who live in your community and your ability to to affect change with them. So I appreciate well, all three of you for sharing your experiences um, and and for your authenticity and for your inspiration to me and to our listeners for how they can also uh, you know serve their community. All right, we're at a little over an hour. You guys want to wrap up? Yeah, yeah, sounds good. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of our episode. Uh, Representative Bell, thank you for being here today. My pleasure, Andy. Thank you for having me. Councilmember Schuler, thank you for being here as well. Thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. Bailey, big high five to you. Thanks for being here as always. Always. Thank you, Andy. Listeners, thank you for being here as well. Uh, we'll say it again. Remember that decisions are made by those who show up. And maybe our other mantra, right, is that all politics is local. Uh, and so don't overlook um, the things that matter here in your community. Uh, even if running for office isn't for you, you know, call Lauren. She'll talk you into it. But if you are convinced that it's not, there are other ways you can serve. Boards and commissions, right? Like I have several friends that are on traffic commissions in Oklahoma City. And good golly, they're busy a lot. And they're doing stuff that matters to lots of people too, right? Thinking and there's about, plenty of oh, campaigns who need some folks right now to help get good people elected. That's exactly right. Now's the time to get involved. If you have had a passing interest, even an active interest in politics, but never really done much besides listen to this podcast, I encourage you to just get involved, right? Reach out to a candidate that you support, see how you can volunteer, knock some doors. It is always rewarding for the door knocker themselves, right? Whether or not your candidate wins doesn't matter. You had a chance to do the thing and talk to some of your neighbors, which is honestly something we should all do more of, right? All right. Uh, on that note, we will we'll wrap up and we'll see you guys next week. Have a good week.